Well, friends, turns with, turn with me to Luke chapter 4, if you would. Open your Bibles to Luke 4. Uh, as has been mentioned, we are in a series in the Gospel of Luke, looking at the ministry of Jesus in chapters 4 through 9. And we're doing this because we think periodically it's important that we as professing, professing Christians sort of recenter our faith around Jesus. And that might seem like a total no-brainer. Of course we do. Uh, but there are subtle ways I think all of us uh, can be tempted to kind of find the center of our faith gravitating around other things. And sometimes very good things. Uh, sometimes we can really think of our faith in terms of the, the truths we believe. And sometimes we can really think of it in terms of the, the, the way that we live, the morals that we live by. And of course, Christian faith is very concerned about the truth we believe. And it's very concerned about the ways that we live. But we need to always remember that we believe certain things and we do certain things because we trust in a person. Because we become followers and disciples of Jesus. And he's taught us these things and he's shown us the way. And so we are taking the next few months to stop and come back and look at the life and ministry of Jesus. <clears throat> Today we're going to look at part two of Luke's introduction to the ministry of Jesus in the second half of Luke chapter 4. So I'll begin reading in verse 31 through the end of the chapter. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And he, immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. We have all kinds of sayings that indicate the fact that people communicate things by their actions, by what they do. Actions speak louder than words, right? 
Uh, if you're going to walk the walk or talk the talk, you better walk the walk. Uh, if somebody does something noteworthy, uh, we might say, you know, that really says something about who you are. If a sports team wins a tough game, we might say that win made a statement, right? When Coach Prime led Colorado to a win, that made a statement, right? If the commanders managed to win on week one today, it makes a statement about new ownership, at least for now, right? Uh, we listen to what people do is the point, not just what they say. Well, in our text this morning, Jesus does things that say things. Jesus does things that say things about who he is. So in last week's passage, if you were here, we saw Jesus preach a sermon from Isaiah chapter 61 about what he had come to do. He's proclaiming, he's preaching a sermon about himself, about why he's there. Well, in this week's passage, we see him do it. He has talked the talk, and now this week he walks the walk. And his, his actions here in Capernaum actually follow the outline of his sermon. It's pretty impressive. I never thought about arranging my week around the points of last week's sermon, but that's basically what Jesus does. In verses, uh, starting in verse 31, he preaches good news to the poor. That was first point in his sermon. In verses 33 through 37, he frees prisoners oppressed by Satan. That was point two in his sermon. In verses 38 through 40, he heals the sick. Third point in his sermon. And the point is that all these miracles make a statement about the man. So the title of today's message is Miracles That Preach. Miracles That Preach. And these miracles that we read of in this portion of Luke show us three things. They show us Jesus' authority, his identity, and his mission. So I know we've, we've got a lot of government employees here this morning, and you love acronyms. So you can title today's message, Jesus' AIM, his authority, identity, and mission. You're welcome, government employees. So first up, Jesus' authority. After Jesus escapes death in his hometown, Nazareth, he goes down to a city called Capernaum. Now, this city will become his base of operations for the rest of his ministry. And compared to the backwoods that Nazareth is on the outskirts of town, Capernaum is practically cosmopolitan. Uh, it, it is a thriving fishing village on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. And the city is significant because ancient travel and trade routes uh, flowed through it. Uh, it sits at the border of two Roman provinces. So it probably had a customs stop on the way through. It was, it was a busy place. Not a major city, but it was a thriving community. And in Jesus' day, it was sort of a regional hub. And so he's come down from sort of the backwoods of Nazareth, and he's down now in this place, Capernaum, which is relatively affluent, but it would have had people from every station of life who were all involved in this business of, of, of harvesting and gathering and exporting and trading things like weed and olives and wine and fish. 
And word is getting around to this whole region about Jesus. And Luke tells us that the buzz at the docks and the market stalls and the synagogues is all about his authority. And we see it first in the actually first and last verses of this opening section. Verse 32, and they were astonished at his teaching. Why? For his word possessed authority. Again in verse 36, and they were all amazed and said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. So this authority that that the whole region is sort of buzzing about uh, in the headlines and all the all the clicks, everything is about Jesus's authority. And that comes through to them. The text tells us in two ways. The first is the authority of his word. That's especially what so uh, impressed people at the synagogues. Mark, in his gospel, when he recounts this story, specifically tells us that the authority of Jesus' teaching contrasted with the, the teaching of the scribes that people were used to. Uh, The scribes, if you came to church and heard them teach, they would read a passage in Hebrew from the scroll. Then they would likely translate it on the spot into Aramaic, which is the common language of the Jews in the day. And they would give an overview then of how that portion of the Old Testament had historically been interpreted by other teachers. Not exactly scintillating communication, you know? Well, when Jesus comes on the scene, to be clear, it's not that he's flashy by comparison. Uh, He doesn't tell jokes. He doesn't kind of work the stage. Uh, By all accounts, he reads from the scrolls just like the scribes. He sits down to teach just like the scribes. But Jesus sets the town abuzz not because of his flair but because of his authority. When he speaks, he commands attention because he means it. Someone once asked Benjamin Franklin about why he so often would go and hear George Whitfield preach. Because they knew Benjamin Franklin didn't always, didn't really believe the things that Whitfield was teaching. And when he was questioned about it, and they said, hey, Franklin, do you believe what Whitfield's preaching? And Franklin said, no, but he does. There was something about Whitfield's clarity and confidence and authority in his preaching that made even someone like Benjamin Franklin show up to hear it. That's going on in in Capernaum because Jesus doesn't pontificate about the interpretations of past teachers. He speaks directly and authoritatively about what the text means. He doesn't read the passages and then talk about other people. He reads them and says, this is what it means right now for you. And he says, I am the only one they're about. His assertions are direct because they're about him. Jesus is saying things in his preaching that for any other preacher would be not only arrogant and audacious, It would be idolatrous, right? 
But for Jesus, it's the truth. He can read Isaiah 61 and sit down and says, it's about me and it's happening now. There's an immediacy to it, and that's unusual. But his words aren't only direct, they're they're powerful. The opening section gives the very first account in Luke of Jesus performing a miracle. There's 21 of these in Luke. This is the first one. And this one's noteworthy for how sparse it is. Like if you were to tell somebody that you went to church and some guy cast out a demon from some other guy, you might take your time, right? I mean, you might give some detail. Here's how it went down. And the guy came in the room and everybody's tense and kind of, oh, what's going to happen? And then the guy said this and then this happened and he went there. We don't get any of that here. We're not told who uh, the man's name that this happens to. There's almost no detail about what he's like afterwards, about what he says. Was he thankful to Jesus? Is he not? Does he go around telling everybody? We don't know. He doesn't say. All we're told is that when it's all said and done, the guy's safe. No harm has come to him. All of the attention is on the impression this experience has on the crowd. Now, have you ever wondered... What would it be like to experience Jesus working a miracle? Man, just wouldn't it be great just to be there and see this stuff happen? Being in the room, this synagogue, likely not a big place, the largest ones that have been uh, found from ancient times at most would hold a couple hundred people. These people are watching Jesus perform a miracle firsthand, live, in person, up close, And here's what Luke says about what they said. They don't say, what an incredible miracle. They say, what is this word? Here's the point. What they're observing and what we're meant to observe is when Jesus speaks, stuff happens. When when Jesus speaks, Things happen. And the effects of a person's commands are indications of their authority. If one of my kids tells one of their siblings to do something, do you think they do it? No. And what happens? Steps upstairs. Dad, will you come tell so-and-so to do such-and-such? They're appealing to my authority, right? So it is in, in your job, right? You talk to your coworkers and they may have a suggestion or have some input or have an idea and you might take it or leave it. But when your boss tells you to do something, you interact with that a little differently. Your job's on the line, right? You relate to that command differently because of the authority of the person who's giving it. Well, when Jesus, King of Kings and Lord of Lords speaks, things happen. Jesus is still working miracles by his power today. And he does them the same way, through the power of his word. It's the way it always has been. It's the way it always will be. Think about this. Jesus is the one, Scripture tells us, through whom all of the universe was created. And he created it by his word. Let there be, 
and there was. Colossians tells us that Christ upholds the universe. How? By the word of his power. The reason that you can bank on gravity and sunrises and fall colors is because Jesus Christ says so. Scientists have a firm foundation to work from because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he has now intervened in the world he created by his word. He spoke to Abraham and called him to trust in his covenant promise. He spoke to Moses and delivered the word of the law. He spoke through his prophets to call people to remember his word and trust in his word and obey his word. And on the other side of the grave, Jesus calls forth the church by his word. His own brother James tells us in James 1.18 of his own will, Jesus brought us forth How? By the word of truth, that we, church, might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Because Romans 10, 17 tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And then he puts that word in our hands and on our hearts and sends us out with it. So Paul says to the church in Ephesians, as you go out into the world, church, you put on the armor of God. And as you put on that armor, you're going to have one piece of equipment that's meant for offense, not defense. And that is Ephesians 5, 17, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Hebrews 4, 12 tells us that that word that the risen Christ has placed in our hands is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning thoughts and intentions of the heart. And when our battle is over and our faith becomes sight, Revelation tells us that we will behold King Jesus, Revelation 1, whose voice is like the roar of many waters, and from his mouth came a two-edged sword. Church, the risen Christ reigns over his world and his church by his word. So it should be no surprise That when the people in Jesus' day see a great display of his power, what they are awed by and can't get over and are talking to their neighbors about is the authority of his word. And friends, the same is true today. This is why we don't take up other weapons. This is why we preach the word and study the word and pray the word and sing the word and treasure the word. Not because we love books, not because we're like learned academic types, but because the one who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood speaks to us through his powerful word. 
And friends, I want to encourage you. You can experience this every day. Uh, Bible 101 class, every day, right? You can join us next week and we'll talk about it more. But there is a real work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts when we read and experience the Word of Christ. The authority of Jesus is revealed in another way in this passage. This is his authority over evil. The authority of his word and now his authority over evil. Stop and think about it. It's no surprise that one of the first uh, forces Jesus would confront in his earthly ministry is the force of evil. The passage mentions twice that Jesus cast out demons. Now this raises all kinds of questions for modern people. So let me say just a few things about what this passage calls demons or unclean spirits. First, uh, I just want to be completely honest about this. All right, if you're a guest, I'm not going to try to pull one over on you. Uh, we actually believe this stuff. Uh, we really do. Um, all right. The Bible teaches and we believe that there are unseen evil powers in the world that are opposed to the work of God and adversely affect human life. And we see that here in this passage. Now, that's not the kind of thing that, that people are often comfortable with, uh, which sometimes leads to all kinds of creative attempts to explain stories like this in the Bible through kind of natural means or natural explanations. Uh, a common one is that these are simply examples of psychosis, uh, that these people are, are crazy, uh, that it's really maybe some sort of personality disorder or schizophrenia or something that's, that's underneath this. And they'll say that uh, then these primitive ancient societies just attributed um, uh, supernatural beings to these actually natural phenomena. I think those explanations uh, are misguided. I think they're a little bit, if I can be honest, chronologically arrogant, um, as if, you know, the people who built the Colosseum and came up with the eye of, uh, idea of aqueducts are somehow like less intelligent than we are. Um, but I, I think they're, they're dishonest about what we find in the Bible because it's, we can be a little embarrassed by them. And so we look for other ways to explain it. But the fact is, these stories are as wild as they sound like they are. <laughs> Let's just be honest about that. But I think people also wonder, man, if, if, if this stuff is happening so much in the Gospels in Jesus' day, uh, why don't we see more of it now? And it's a fair question. Uh, it's likely that there's a bit more of it going on than what most of us see or talk about. Um, we could have a chat with Robin after the service today. have some stories that might keep you up tonight. Um, but if you think about it, really, this is an unusual moment in all of human history and these are even unusual or especially significant moments in the life of Jesus. The reason these moments are captured in the Bible is precisely because they are unusual. 
Luke doesn't give us accounts of the days that Jesus got up and had breakfast with his disciples and did some teaching and took a nap, right? He highlights and puts our attention on the moments that, that proclaim particular things about his power, moments like this. But I think we should also expect there's going to be an unusual outpouring of, of demonic evil opposition because Jesus is a unique person. Uh, when the Son of God arrives on the scene of human history, it churns some things up. It, it stirs some things around. And one of the things it churns up is the concern of the forces of evil. They get riled up. And honestly, if you read the passage, they're freaking out. Right? Their question is, have you come to destroy us? Unspoken answer is, Absolutely. Uh, they're right to be concerned. So friends, if there are these, these forces in the world and the one who has the power to destroy them shows up all of a sudden, it makes sense that they would show up on the scene with some questions. And they do. But you know, I think what's most controversial today, perhaps more than previous generations, is not so much even that demons could be a thing, but that Jesus might have authority. Maybe I'm wrong on that, but think about it with me. I think we live in a very spiritual age. I mentioned last week that studies show that even in our community, uh, there's, there's a high reporting of people saying they're spiritual people. So I think if you told a friend that you experienced someone acting just wild and, and it gave you some weird vibes and you just think there might have been something going on there, some evil thing behind it. I'm not sure that would ruffle too many feathers. But if you tell that friend that you believe Jesus has authority over that evil spirit, that's pretty weird. But Luke is showing us that Jesus confronts evil and conquers it. When he shows up, this is what we need to see. Spirits, unclean spirits, demons, they get worried. When, when he speaks, these spirits do exactly what Jesus says. Christian, that should be incredibly reassuring to you. There's a lot of evil in the world. Uh, there's a lot to be afraid of. There's a lot to wake up in the morning and be concerned about. If you're older, maybe it just feels like the world is just getting out of control. Like things are just getting worse and worse. And is it ever going to stop? And if you're younger, the statistics are telling us that reports of anxiety are just higher and higher across the board but even higher proportionally the younger that you are. And it's true that when we take a cold, hard look at the world, there's a lot of reason to be concerned. There's a lot of reason to fear. Christian, the one and only true reason you do not have to fear is that the one who rules the world holds your heart. Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world.
John 1 says, He is the light of the world, and darkness will not overcome him. That's who Jesus is. He has all power and all authority, and he reigns over all evil. And he's promised you, I will never leave you or forsake you. And greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. So Christian, we can say to one another, fear not, brother, fear not, sister. Jesus rules the universe, and Jesus is strong and good. The miracles proclaim Jesus' authority. The miracles also proclaim his identity. They proclaim his identity. The demons say it themselves, and the miracles show it. The demon Jesus encounters in the synagogue cries out in verse 34, I know who you are, holy one of God. The demon he encounters that evening, they cry out in verse 41, you are the son of God. Jesus, or Luke says, they knew, these demonic forces, unclean spirits knew that he was the Christ. And so Luke's affirming These demons don't confess the faith, but they do confess the truth. They know Jesus' identity. Now, you can know true things about Jesus and not be interested in the saving grace of Jesus. And that's certainly the case here. The people of Capernaum come to know who Jesus is as well. And they see him being and doing what he's been preaching. It isn't confined to just casting out demons. Jesus goes on in his miraculous ministry in this passage. And just when you thought the demonstration of his power couldn't be any greater after he casts out a demon, he shows his authority over an even greater foe, a mother-in-law. <laughs> just kidding, mother-in-laws, I love you. Denise, if you're watching this, I love you. Just getting your attention. Jesus comes into the home of Simon's house, and they appeal to him, Simon, what a gracious son-in-law. He appeals to Jesus on behalf of his mother-in-law. I'm sure he scored some big points on that. Or maybe he knew if she got up, she'd start getting lunch ready, which she did. I don't know. But... This happens, and then that evening when the Sabbath is over, and so all the people feel a little more freedom to be out and about, Sabbath laws aren't holding them tight anymore, they come to him in droves. Verse 40 says, All those who had any sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And so these miracles are showing Jesus to be who he said he was in that Isaiah 61 sermon. They show us a few things. We see Jesus' identity first in the charitable nature of his miracles. It's so easy to take this for granted, but just think about it. When Jesus arrives, he doesn't miraculously build bridges to improve travel and trade. 
He doesn't miraculously overthrow the Roman army to allow Israel to establish dominance. He doesn't uh, cause the birds to fly in the sky in such a way as to spell his name. He doesn't make all the animals of the region come and bow down before him as a sign of his deity. Every time Jesus uses his power to do miracle, he does things that help people. It's amazing. And he does things to help people who can't help themselves. He heals the chronically ill. He gives sight to the blind. He feeds hungry people who don't have food. He causes the paralyzed to walk. He frees people who are oppressed by demons. He raises people who are dead. He calms storms on the water and guides fish into nets when that's what real people need. Jesus is so merciful and kind in every demonstration of his power. We also see his identity in the the variety of his miracles. He shows us his power over demons and disease. Later, he'll show it over nature and eventually death itself. His miracles have a particular purpose and they are always directed toward a particular people, but they aren't confined to a particular realm. He has authority over it all. We also see Jesus' identity in in the beneficiaries of his miracles. He heals even just in this short passage, a man and a woman. He speaks to crowds and, and he deals with individuals. When people come to him that evening, I love Luke records, he laid his hands on every one of them. Think about that. He could have just let them come in droves and spoken a word that would have just fixed everybody in mass. That's not how he does it. He takes a moment with each and every person and touches them. Not because he had to, but because that's who he is. We see Jesus' identity in the scope of his miracles as well. He works against cosmic powers in the world, and he heals a woman in her home. He ministers publicly and privately. In this passage, he's in the synagogues, and he's in the sickbeds. And in all of these things, Jesus is restoring what Satan has warped. What Satan has twisted and destroyed, Jesus restores. Because Jesus has authority over all things and his power is available to all people. He's ministering with the authority of God as the anointed son of God. And he's doing these things, thirdly and briefly, to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. That's the last thing we see is Jesus's mission, his mission. Verse 42, it says, and when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them this, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. 
First of all, if you were here last week, um, what a contrast from last week's crowd, right? Um, Nazareth drags him outside to kill him. Capernaum goes and finds him outside in a desolate place to beg him to stay. Now, this is a completely natural and understandable desire on the behalf of the people of Capernaum. If you're grading the crowd so far, if you're keeping score, Nazareth gets negative points, Capernaum gets some good ones, right? This is natural, understandable. We want Jesus to stay. And they've responded to his message in faith because he has spent some time there and done many good things there. But this moment also speaks to a problem that I think we often run into, which is that we want to manage Jesus, even with the best of intentions. We want him to work on our issues in our timing. And that's not always his plan. But as we said last week, Jesus can't be humanly managed. And what we see here is that that's because he is under what's been called a divine must. The crowds declare his authority. The demons declare his identity. Now Jesus himself declares his mission. He has a God-assigned purpose. He has been sent by God, he says, to preach the kingdom of God. This is a more significant moment than I think we might realize because it says something about Jesus just like the miracles did. It shows Jesus passing the test of applause. In Nazareth, Jesus passes the test of rejection. In Capernaum, he passes the test of fame. They beg him to stay but his mission drives him to move on. His clarity and commitment to his purpose keeps him from being discouraged by rejection or distracted by praise. Ephesians 4 talks about the wind and waves that can come and, and knock us off course. And those same winds and waves batter Jesus in the course of his ministry. And when we read about those, those winds and waves, I think often I think of things like trials that can come. In the context of Ephesians, it could be false teachings that come and, and press against us and push us in wrong directions. But some of the greatest tests of faith we go through are the valleys of rejection and the peaks of applause. People praise our faith one day and excoriate it the next. When it leads to being a helpful neighbor or uh, a productive employee, great. <laughs> but when it goes against the grain of popular priorities or dares to name certain actions as wrong or claims that Jesus only is the way, the truth, and the life, it's a different story. One of the tests Christians and churches face is the test of both rejection and applause. And just like Jesus, we have to take up our own cross and follow him and not be distracted or deterred by rejection and not be distracted or deterred by applause. 
because he was fixed on the mission God had given him. And friends, as we, as his disciples, look to him and speak the truth in love, Ephesians then tells us that we will not be tossed to and fro by winds and waves. It says we will grow up into maturity, into steady, stable stature in Christ. But just like Jesus, we have to be fixed on our mission to proclaim in our time to our generation the kingdom of God. Friends, as we close, I think we need to see in Jesus that as his disciples through faith in him, we too have an authority, an identity, and a mission. Some of the deepest questions of our souls are, who do I belong to? Who am I? What is my purpose? Disciples of Jesus have answers to those questions. We live under the authority of God as the children of God for the glory of God. Friends, you don't have to go through life making up your morality as you go, uh, wondering what the meaning of life is. You have a firm foundation, Christian disciple, and you have a clear purpose. As the sons and daughters of God in his good kingdom, which he reigns over by his word, you and I let our light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And may that be so. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this glimpse of King Jesus. God, how good it is to come under his benevolent rule. And Father, just as he was obedient to his marching orders as your son, God, would you help us to keep our eyes fixed on the purpose you've given us as your sons and daughters. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.